Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the book of Kohelet, chapter one. Um, I must apologize ahead of time that this first uh, chapter will also include an introduction, so this will probably be a kind of a big sheer um, first introduction, and then we'll actually get into the translation of the chapter. Um, in a way, teaching and learning the book of Kohelet, or as it is known from the ancient Greek translation, Ecclesiastes, is more difficult than the book of Eov. Now, while the language in Eov is more difficult, the arguments themselves, when they're not obscured by the very difficult language, the arguments are very straightforward. The characters are largely consistent. That is, Eov has his sense of right or wrong, and he stays to it. So to the companions, Elihu and God. Um, Kohelet, on the other hand, seems to... Well, just saying as it is, he seems to contradict himself, and therefore his message is unclear. <clears throat> Another problem is that Eov um, can say some pretty unorthodox things, but we know where it's coming from. It's coming from his massive suffering. And as long as he's faithful in God, which he says he always is, so we can tolerate, and God seems to tolerate some pretty harsh words from him. Kohelet on the other hand, um, his theses are based on observations and personal experience, and while he can be quite orthodox, at other times, he seems quite unorthodox. To quote Rabbi Yol ben Nun, we're not really sure what Kohelet wants from us. So the question is how to approach this book. On one hand, we can follow Rashi's lead as an exemplar of the rabbinic approach, which is to make everything Eov says come out orthodox. That is, to read the text in such a way where there are little or no internal contradictions and everything comes up from. Never underestimate Rashi, by the way, who uses a technique of translating the text using metaphoric substitutions, which smooth out or sometimes invert the meaning of the text. I'll explain what that means in a second. And there's no question that the book does contain metaphors. That is, Rashi is correct to say the book does contain metaphors, as much of biblical poetry does. For instance, in chapter 12, when the book talks about Ubatlu HaTochanot Kimietu, the Tochanot is not talking about literal grinding stones. Uh, it is a metaphor, which we will see. I'll give an example of Rashi's methodology from the third verse of the book, which reads, Mayitron Adam Rashi translates, what profit can there be for a man in any work that he does which replaces the sun, which means replaces the Torah? Now Rashi reads tachat as, not underneath, but instead of, or exchange of. And in fact, that's how it can be used. It's how it's used when Avram offers a ram instead of, or in exchange for, his son Isaac. tachat bino. The sun is, can be used for a metaphor for from the Torah, uh, the sun, which is a source of all light. This is similar to the way it's used in Psalm 19, as Nachum Sarna explains in his wonderful book called On the Book of Psalms. A more obvious case of biblical poetry in uh, needing to essentially be translated by substituting the metaphoric word with the word that actually, that is the metaphoric meaning rather than the word, um, now, of course, you don't want to lose the flavor of the metaphoric word. If you want to use the sun, it carries with it the sense of heat. It carries with it the sense of uh, of giving light. But ultimately, to understand it, you have to translate the metaphor for the word that it means. And this can be seen most obviously and rather humorously in Psalm 22, verse 13, where David cries out to God, Sivavuni parim rabim, many cows surround me. Now, it's clear that David is not surrounded by heifers and calling out to 
God in desperation as they're mooing at him. Cows is clearly a metaphor, whether it's for bad people or insensitive people or, or vicious people, whatever it is. But there is a metaphor play, and ultimately, to get to the meaning, you have to translate, otherwise it's actually silly. Uh, another example is the Song of Songs, Shira Shirim, which is in its totality a metaphor for the relationship between God and the Jewish people. But there are difficulties in following Rashi's lead 100% of switching out the metaphor words with the meaning behind the metaphor. Rashi himself, in fact, says in his own introduction to Shira Shirim that one always needs to understand the plain sense of a text in order to get to, to in order to be able to understand the metaphor. Um, but here, the plain sense seems sometimes to be directly opposed to the metaphor which is proposed. In addition, um, Kohelet, as opposed to Shira Shirim, for example, where you could say the man always represents God and the woman always represents the Jewish people and there's a consistency, here we don't really have that consistency. And Rashi himself, for instance, runs into a problem in chapter 4, verse 7, which reads, Vishavti ani hevel there, the the metaphor replacement of Torah for Shamesh for sun simply doesn't work. So Rashi writes, Takara Shamesh Kamo Takara Shamayim, meaning don't use my metaphoric translation in this case. And that's that's a difficulty. On the other hand, we could take the extreme extreme scholarly approach, we could go all the way to the other side, and we could say that Kohelet is an unorthodox, cynical pessimist who believe that God does not take care of this world in a sensible way, and uh, and therefore when the book says something orthodox, according to these extreme scholars, that's not even Kohelet. It's the glosses of a later author that wanted to make the book from and acceptable. Now, um, there's a great scholar and conservative uh, conservative rabbi, or was, he passed away, named Robert Gordis, who destroys this extreme scholarly argument. Um, not that I agree with everything Robert Gordis has to say on this book, but he has a lot of good points. Uh, and he destroys this argument both from a literary as well as from a religious perspective. The literary problem is that all these contra- in all these contradictions, the orthodox and the unorthodox, they all have the same style, and sometimes they're intertwined together textually, sometimes in the same verse, so to rip a part of one from the other and say that it's a later clause, it, it's just not right. Religiously, there is another problem. Why would anybody bother glossing a book in order to make it from so that it could be accepted into Tanakh if the book wasn't from enough, as many books weren't, such as the book of Ben Sira. There were other books that, that you know, were just you know, religious thought that didn't make the cut. So there's no pushing need to canonize it. They didn't canonize Ben Sira. And if Kohelet was a non-from, or I should say non-Orthodox approach to God, then then just don't canonize it. There's no reason to add stuff in in order to make it acceptable. Just put it on the shelf and or put it in the bottom drawer. Now, there were some schools, such as Beit Shammai, that doubted its canonicity. They doubted whether it was should be in Tanakh. But the overwhelming majority, from the grassroots all the way up to Beit Hillel, felt that it was a holy book. And you can't fool that many people all the time. If the people from the grassroots up were convinced that it belonged to Tanakh as is, so so should we. And therefore, turning Kohelet into an unorthodox person is, in my opinion, absurd. However, Kohelet, much like the author of Eov, can still be bothered with unorthodox thoughts. And that's a very Jewish way. If something bothers us, we tend not to sweep it under a rug of doctrine and dogma. Not all questions can be answered. That's true. Sometimes the world does seem absurd, but that doesn't keep us from asking the questions. It just means that 
nobody dies from a question that can't be answered. I think what we see in Kohelet is a man who's trying to synthesize the world around him with Jewish, with, with Jewish doctrine and his own fear of God and belief in a system and a righteous and just system. And to this goal, he pursues wisdom, he becomes a master of wisdom, and he pursues life in order to understand the entire world, and then he collects all this information, he thinks, and he theorizes, and he gives us thesis, and he gives us antithesis. He behaves, in short, the way every faithful human being does when dealing with the world. Sometimes you feel like you have a good beat on things, and the next day you wake up and say, you know what, that idea that I had, that's not so good, Lon, and I go back to the drawing board. Ultimately, Kohelet is about is about how to be, in my opinion, it's about how to be an orthodox person in a world which does not always make that job easy. And I think that people have always loved Kohelet, this book, because his struggle is honest. It is, Kohelet's struggle is our struggle. We can identify and relate to it. Um, one more problem uh, as far as dealing with the book of Kohelet before I get into the issue of authorship and dating, and then I'll move on to chapter one, the translation. The, the book copiously emphasizes key ideas. That is, it has these repeating phrases which repeat over and over again. Ein Yitron, the Tachat HaShamesh, or HaShemesh, Re'ut Ruach, and of course, Hevel, Hevel Havalim, Hakol Havel. That phrase, Havel, shows up more than 30 times. Unfortunately, these ideas are hard to translate. That is, it's not clear if each one represents a consistent philosophical idea, and or whether it's you know being used by the author in different ways based on context. And therefore, what I'll try to do is I'll offer various explanations when we get to these key words and phrases. And you'll have to make up your own mind which seems the best uh, translation. I'll probably hint at what I think is the best translation, but of course it always pays to give a few options. Finally, regarding authorship and dating, the rabbis of the Talmud say Kohelet was King Solomon. But the editor of the book, according to the rabbis, was King Chizkiyahu and his, in fact, maybe not him, but his council, like his editing crew, which can put us, which puts us at least 250 years after the time of Solomon. Uh, Hezekiah was at the end of the uh, 8th century into the 7th century, and his council of writers probably continued well on after his death. Um, Solomon's name, in fact, in the book is never uh, given. However, if you look at the book, you'll see a lot of descriptions that fit what we know about King Shlomo, King Solomon, from uh, the book of Kings and other places. Now, rabbinic thought believes that the book contains many metaphors for the Babylonian uh, exile, as Rashi points out, and that would place the book in the 6th century, uh, say about uh, 80 years, uh, no, about 100 years after King Chizkiyahu, um, that's assuming, of course, the book is written con- contemporaneously with the exile and refers to it rather than being a prophecy which is written earlier but, pr- but, but is a prophecy of the future. <clears throat> the last few verses, for sure, make, sh- make it clear that the final author, whoever it was, is not uh, Kohelet himself because it says, Vyoter Shahaya Kohelet Chacham, and more that Kohelet was wise. So the observations in the book fit Solomon to a T. His wealth, his troubled experience, the division in the monarchy, how a king is sort of kind of kicked out of his kingdom or loses political control and power, his political acumen when he was at the height of his game, his unsurpassed intelligence, all of this fits Shlomo. So it appears to be Shlomo's wisdom, but exactly when an inspired author 
took all of Solomon's wisdoms about this subject and turned it into a holy book for the masses, that's unclear. Personally, I think it's into the 6th or even the 5th centuries, so say the, the year 500 and something BCE, which puts us into the exile, or maybe uh, the, the early 400s, which would put us into the beginning of the rebuilding of the Second Temple, maybe around Ezra's time. Um, to date it that way is, in my opinion, not unorthodox, but it's hard to know for sure. Divrei Kohelet ben David Melch Yushlaim, finally we get to the book itself. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word Kohelet does not seem to be a name. It seems to be a job description, since sometimes in the book he's called HaKohelet, the Kohelet. The root of the word is almost for sure Kahal, which is a congregation or gathering, but the exact role or job description is unclear. Perhaps Kohelet would gather people around to expound ideas, like a preacher of some sort, an educator, or perhaps he would gather all kinds of knowledge or philosophies. The rabbis have us read, that is, Orthodox Judaism reads this book on Sukkot, so it aligns it with God's command that the king of Israel um, gather all the people to Jerusalem once every 70 years to read the whole Torah, a ritual which is called Hakel. Um, which has the same root. Perhaps that that ritual, one done once every 70 years, um, which was very similar to time-bound Jewish tradition, which is not only reading of the Torah, which is a bit dry, but a spirited debate and exploration about the Torah, God, life, etc. The fact that Kohelet is named Ben David, the son of David, does not necessarily mean that it is Solomon. Other kings such as Chizkiah, Yoshiah, were also called Ben David, which really means that they were in the line of David, but also that they were doing a David-worthy job. When the Book of Kings calls somebody Ben David, it means he's doing a good job. Um, it also has messianic overtones, the, the, the idea of Ben David, but I'll, I'll avoid those in this book. Now, moving on to the famous verse 2, which really opens up the content of the book. Havel Havalim Amar Kohelet, Havel Havalim Hakol Havel. Kohelet says everything is Havel, but... What does Havel mean? What does Hevel mean? Um, Havel and Hevel are the same word. Havel at the end of the sentence must like, much like Bori Priya Gefen becomes Bori Priya Gafen and Shemesh at the end of the sentence becomes Shamesh. That's called a pausal read. So there's no difference between Hevel and Havel. The common translation for Hevel is vanities, but, uh, all you're doing there is replacing a vague word with another vague word in English, a vague English word. And perhaps that's why it was selected in order to avoid pinning down any meaning because they weren't sure what the original meaning was. Um, the source of the word uh, Hevel, if we want to look at the etymology, is vapor. It's like the steam that escapes one's mouth when one talks, or like that uh, goes up from a fire uh, and dissipates uh, both the steam of the mouth and the, and, the, and the smoke coming out of the fire. They quickly dissipate and dissipate, you know, uh, dissipate and, and, and are gone from sight. Uh, from there, the word, this idea of dissipation, of being nothing substantive. So in Tehillim, it's used for lies, for empty things, even when referring to all false gods, are called Hevel. Um, interestingly, in the book of Bereshit, Adam's son is called Hevel. He's the one who gets killed by his brother Cain. And it's important to realize that that's not his given name. It never says that Adam or Chava called him Hevel as Chava did name Cain. Uh, um, it, but the story is significant. That is, Hevel is not named Hevel by a person. It's named Hevel by the Torah because it's not describing who he was. It's describing what he was. What was he? He was a good man who was murdered for his goodness. 
who disappears from the world with no lasting effect. No offspring, no children, no history, nothing but a story, and that's it for him. Based on this, we can say that the idea of, on one hand, of uh, dissipating, of having no lasting significance, is a good translation for for Hevel. Now, modern scholars, like the Orthodox scholars as well, like the translation absurd, um, and they base this on similarities between Kohelet's philosophies and those of the French philosopher Albert Camus, who um, identified that he identified all of the human condition, human conditions being absurd, meaning that man's desire for significance ir- irreconcilable with the reality of the world around him. Um, I don't think that Kohelet thinks that everything that uh, man does in this world is absurd. So I really, so I'm 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 a little uncomfortable with that translation, and I'm very uncomfortable with making a direct connection between Kohelet and and Albert Camus' philosophies. Um, I don't think that he that our Kohelet is pessim, as pessimistic and certainly not as cynical as scholars would like us to believe. However, he is probably more doubtful than Rashi uh, would have us um, understand Kohelet. I would like to go back to that meaning which I hinted at before. That is something that is transient, something that is short-lived, something that leaves little lasting impression and therefore one has to question its worth. Now, it may be absurd, as we will read in this chapter, that a man should toil and toil to invent something that A, has already been invented, as he'll say in this chapter, and B, which will be forgotten as soon as the person dies or sometime after the person dies. But I don't think it's the absurdity that Kohela is trying to get to, um, but it's the transience of the human endeavor, which I think is the central point. Although, you know, absurd does work okay, because one could say that, going back to the Hevel story in Bereshit, that it's absurd that the bad guy winds up having children and, and having a story, and the good guy, Hevel, winds up being a complete zero. Um, making the translation in this passage of Hevel even more difficult is not clear whether this one verse is an introduction to the whole book or just the first section, which means from verses 3 to 11. That is, when he says, Hakol Havel, everything is Havel, what is he referring to? If it's just the first section, and we're about to read about the fact that, uh, that um, th- essentially the fact that, that human life is transient and leaves no lasting impression, as opposed to the world, which goes on forever and ever. If that's true, transient and leaving no impression is probably the best translation. If Hakol Havel refers to the whole book and everything that's in it, so maybe absurd is a good translation. Um, Rashi takes a different approach, which is he notices that there are seven appearances of the word Hevel in this verse. Hevel Havalim is three because the plural Havalim equal two. Of course, this is a drashic, but that's where he goes with. And then another Hevel Havalim is three more. That's six. Hakol Havel is seven. So what he says is the seven days of creation, everything that is created in this world will eventually deteriorate and disappear. And therefore, the only only the spiritual things, only the Torah have lasting value. What profit does man get from all the toil that he toils under the sun? Now, in the introduction earlier, I mentioned that Rashi's read of this is as a metaphor, and I also mentioned the more literal meaning. Uh, but based on the last chapter of this book, chapter 12, I would like to suggest that the sun, under the sun, is, is a metaphor, but it's a metaphor for the years that an individual lives, that is, the man's living days and years. You, we'll see in chapter 12, that's the sense of it, and the, there's a, the metaphor of death is darkness. So, in my opinion, the sense seems to be, you can't take it with you. And you know what? You won't live forever. 
So therefore, everything that you work, all the profits that you get, since you can't take it with you, and they disappear the minute that you that you die, so what benefit is uh, of it? It's all fleeting. Um, and we're not, I'm not just talking about, I don't think Kohala's just talking about physical profits. P-R-O-F-I-T-S. That is the profit of physical things, of money, of wealth. He's talking about knowledge as well. The knowledge that you acquire disappears a- at death as well. So either dying is absurd or all the efforts it takes to amass profits and to amass knowledge is absurd because one generation goes and another generation comes. Only the world or but the world lasts forever. Now, I translated ba in this sentence as to come. But based on the metaphor as the sun being one's life on earth, it could mean dor holech v'dor ba, a generation comes up and then a generation sets. That is, just like ba Hashemesh does not mean sunrise, it means sunset, so too every generation, like the sun, it gets its time to traverse the sky, but like the sun, it always sets. What remains after the sunset is the cold, unfeeling earth, but the person completely disappears. Now, even, however, Kohelet will say in the next verse is even that sun metaphor is, is flawed because the same sun as opposed to man reappears over and over. It gets a day to shine again and then and again and then and again as opposed to man once he who was more linear once he dies he does not shine again. Again we're putting the idea of resurrection off the table. We're just talking about practical existence in this in this world. Now after we just discussed the earth we're going to discuss three other essential elements of the physical world, the sun, the wind, and the water in that order. Now, these are, of course, the four elements, earth, air, wind, and fire, which are not really discussed anywhere else in the Torah, in Tanakh. They're this discussion of the four elements or or citation of the four elements are unique to the book of Kohelet. They are first they are first found in Greek thought, which Greek thought which predates Socrates. So we can date them back to as early as the fifth century BC, sometime in the four hundreds BCE, which puts us shortly after the fall of the first temple, maybe the very beginning days of the uh, uh, of the second temple, and it puts us uh, shortly after the Babylonian ag- exile, which, as I said, is in my opinion the likely dating of this book. So those philosophies were pretty much available and around uh, while this book, in my opinion, was being written. Now, I don't mean to say that the, there's scientific validity to this Greek idea of four primary elements. Um, I don't mean that they're elements like on the periodic table, but just as one looks at the world and tries to identify the the um, the non the 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 non animate world, which means not forgetting about vegetables and forgetting about trees and forgetting about about uh, animal life. Essentially, the world is broken down into these four primary substances, which one could define one's existence around, or or the world the world that one exists in. And the sun rises, and then the sun sets, then it pursues its place. And it shines from there. Kohelet is showing, in my opinion, that the sun moves in a cyclical system, a closed system. That is, it's not only that man is linear in comparison to the sun and finite in comparison to the sun, but that 
the world itself has a certain cyclical and redundant nature. That is, you know how everything is going to turn out. You know that tomorrow the sun will come out just like it will today. So on one hand, he's really comparing uh, a man's life to the sun, but saying it's less than the sun because it doesn't get a chance to shine again. But he's also going to talk about each four elements and about how they are cyclical, how they're repetitive, how they repeat over and over and over again. And therefore, what's the point about being productive when you just have to start the whole game over and over again? Now, I'm basing this understanding, not really on so much what's written here, but what's written about the four elements in chapter 12, because he revisits the four elements again in chapter 12, but over there in chapter 12, at the end of the book, or actually uh, chapter 11, which is towards the end of the book, Kohelet subverts this chapter, and he points out that there is a linear, non-infinite aspect to all of these four elements. So what I'm really trying to say, by the way, is that to, chapter, to study chapter 1, you kind of need to do it side by side with chapter 12. Unfortunately, that's outside the scope of what we can do here. So over here in chapter 1, Kohelet says the sun goes round and round and round and round, boring, I know, you know, not boring, but hopeless that man can never change what is already in existence. But in chapter 12, he says, enjoy the light that the sun brings, since it is sweet. That doesn't mean that Kohelet is inconsistent or contradictory. Well, he's contradicting himself, but that's not an inconsistency. Kohelet is like us. Sometimes he wakes up and everything seems futile, repetitive, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. But by the end of the book, he works it out. Not because what he says here in chapter 1 is wrong, but because one could have a different perspective on the elements in the world, about how the world works. And that, that different perspective is not only possible and real, but it's constructive and hopeful. So what we have here is the method of Kohelet. He gives us thesis in chapter 1, and then antithesis and conclusions in chapter 12. He makes conclusions, and he discards them, and he makes new ones. And, and that's what's so wonderful and unique, and I think beloved about this book. As in most books of Tanakh, you really get the final result. The Navi tells you how it is. Here in this book of Kohelet, what you get is a process of human endeavor, of inspired thought. A process of trying something out, discarding it, and trying something else out as well. And I think that's what makes the book so exciting. Holech el darom, getting to the next element. Holech el darom, sovev el tzafon, sovev, sovev, holech haruach, ve'al tzvivotab, excuse me, shav haruach. Rashi says this verse is talking about the sun. But I think that Ebenezer is right here to say that the subject is air. We've moved on to the new element. The wind moves to the south and spins back to the north. Rashi says, based on his understanding of the sun, that this is how the sun gets back into the east by sort of rotating around the disk of the of the earth. But I, I think the sense is that the the the, um, the 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 winds move back to the north and back to the south, round and round. Getting back to the the verse, the wind swirls and swirls or spins and sw- spins and then swirls and doubles back on itself. The the fact that the wind moves endlessly in this closed system again makes the world predictable and therefore sort of takes away the point of what man can do in it. Um, as a metaphor, I'll, I'll give you the following example. Um, a farmer winnows his wheat by throwing it up in the wind, and then next year he has to do it again, and the year afterwards he has to do it again, and it goes on year and year, and, and nature outlives, not only does nature outlive man, making, highlighting the fact that, that, that man is, is, is finite and fleeting, linear as opposed to circular, but that very circular nature causes despair because you always know how it's going to turn out. I always know the end of the story. Who would read a mystery if we always know that the butler did it? 
כל הנחלים הולכים אל הים, והים איננו מלא, אל מקום שהנחלים הולכים, שם הם שווים ללכת. All rivers flow to the sea, yet the sea does not fill up. Why? Because to the place where the rivers go, that's where they return from. In, in modern times, we would call this the water cycle. It, first it rains, then it evaporates, then it rains again. It goes back to where it, it, it wants to be, and then it comes back to the source over and over and over again. In ancient times, the thinking, wasn't, uh, the thinking was that the levels of the ocean didn't change. That is, it should rise endlessly. If the rivers keep flowing into the sea, the sea should rise and rise and inundate everything. Why don't they? Because the water went in channels under the sea back to the sources of the rivers, and then when they went back to the sea over and over uh, again, again, either way, the third element, this last element, is, is also described by Coelho as repetitive, ad infinitum, ad absurdum, from a human perspective. But there's another metaphor play, that is, there's two layers of things going on. One is the, or, or multiple layers, one is the permanence of nature and the elements versus the impermanence of, uh, the, 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 the fleeting nature of, of humans, the heavenly nature of humans. Another is the cyclical nature of life and how that's sort of leads one to despair. And there's the third item here is that the fact that the oceans never fill up, which is new. It wasn't said that, but that point wasn't made by the other elements. And that comparison is is being juxtaposed against man's wisdom, as we will see in the next verse, in verse 8. That is, man, his wisdom, even though he tries to take in more and more he never manages to fill up everything he needs. And so the four elements in their cyclical infinity are now compared in verse 8 to man's pursuit of knowledge. Notice that word timale, that's the same one as we had in the last verse. All words, meaning all spoken ideas, all dissertations, all speeches, all theories, they all cause exhaustion because one can never say everything that needs to be said. The eye can never be satisfied with what it sees. The ear cannot be filled up from what it hears. After describing the four elements, Kohelet offers us three senses. Um, and these senses are the ones that are related to knowledge, sight, hearing, and speaking. And like the sea, the intellect can never be filled up. And Translating in that way, it really is sort of a side point about the impossibility of knowing everything that needs to be known, an idea that I think Kohelet will take up right after this introduction. But for now, we seem to return to the idea of the cyclical nature of existence and the permanent nature of uh, of the world, of the inanimate world versus the very fleeting nature, the very transient nature of human beings. Masha that which was is that which will be, that which was already done, or perhaps already been made, will be made or done again. Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. And this implies, pessimistically, that there is no invention that is truly original. There's no originality in human endeavor, neither physical nor intellectual. Now, does Kohelet really believe this? He does say rather playfully, or you could read the next verse cynically, but I, I believe it's playfully. There are things about which people say, look at this, it is new, end quote. Not true. It was already and forever, it's been, it's been around forever, it's already been done in the times that have preceded us. So, if you come up with a new idea, you know what? Somebody else has already come up with it. Why don't we know about it? Because 
why can't we build up on on previous human endeavor? Because ein zichron larishonim v'gam laacharonim sheyu lo yelahem zikaron im sheyu laacharonah. Because there is no memory of the earlier ones, meaning earlier generations, and even the later ones that will be there's no memory of them by those who come even later. So maybe, maybe Kohelet is not denying the possibility that people come up with new ideas. But what he's saying is that after a generation dies, after people die, eventually their work is forgotten and it just needs to be restarted all over again. Of course, this goes against some of our own experience. Um, first of all, you know, in today of modern technology, we our words are recorded. In the days of publishing, things could be recorded and stored on computer and then looked at. You could search for them. And, and that's why technology grows um, exponentially because now for the first time, I guess starting from the Enlightenment age, we're able to really rebuild on, on the work of previous generations, which is really making us take off. You know, but on the other hand, you don't know if it'll last forever. Civilization could eat itself up, uh, God forbid, and then people will just have to start all over again. There's another possibility which tells us that, that Kohelet here, this Kohelet, as I said, Kohelet will himself say that not all of this is correct. But this thesis of Kohelet is, you know, there's a flaw in it. And, and that flaw could be taken by looking at Rashi. Not what Rashi says, but what Rashi is. You know, Rashi never died. His works live on every day because thousands of people read him every day and get inspiration out of him every day and see something new every day. And maybe that's why rabbinic Judaism decries, you know, really goes against plagiarism in, in, in the Gemara. It has some nasty words for people who, who, who claim knowledge as their own. And, and it emphasizes the importance of citing sources, as every good piece of scholarship uh, should do. Maybe the point is that the rabbis were fighting against this truth of Kohelet, that is, if you don't record that, you know, knowledge that belonged to a certain person, then it gets lost. And if it gets lost, all you have to do is start over and over and over again. Here ends the, the introduction of the book, the thesis of the book, which I would like to propose as, as, as follows, but, you know, I, no reason to say that this is the correct translation of the only, the only thesis, but I would like to provide, I'd like to, to, to offer that this is what Eov is saying in the introduction. Nothing man does is permanent. Nothing lasts. Not what he does and not what he is. And the same things that trouble man now will trouble man in a thousand years from now. And every generation has to start the ball rolling all over again. So any creation, whether it's physical or invention that's intellectual, in the end, it is absurd and fleeting. So as I said, Kohelet will reject this thesis by the end of the book. Well, he'll reject all but one part of it, which is that death is inevitable. So the things that one amasses in one's life eventually are, are lost to that person. Now, in verse 12, Kohelet finally introduces himself and talks about attempts to acquire, his own attempt to acquire knowledge so that he could understand the point of life. Ani Kohelet. There's a lot of Ani going on around here, and some people would, would point to a haughtiness in Kohelet, but I, I don't think that that's right. Ani Kohelet. Hayiti melech Yisrael b'yushlayim. I am Kohelet. I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. V'natati et libi lidrosh v'latur b'chachmoa akol asher na'asa. Tachat Hashamayim Hu Inyan Ra Natan Elohim Livnei Adam La Anotbo. I dedicated my mind. Keep in mind that the lave was considered to be the center of thought, intelligence. I dedicated my mind to investigate and to explore using Chokhmah. 
everything that is done, everything that has been made perhaps under the heavens, it is a bad business that God has given man to keep him busy. Now, there are a number of difficulties in this verse. First of all, the word chokhmah is being used as a proper noun, as if there is a known methodology to study, like a chokhmah school that uh, that Kohelet has become an expert at. We might call it a scientific process or a philosophical process. Um, second, the word tachat does not seem to be metaphoric, like the word tachat It means it seems to be literally everything in this world. So what Kohelet seems to be saying is that that is, you can read this verse as saying that Kohelet thinks that all of the things in this world are a bad business that God has given to man. But I think there may be a different sense, and, and I'll try to explain it shortly. So what Kohelet seems to be saying is that he needed to know everything. In order to, in order to understand everything, he needed to master everything. We would say that Kohelet is a polymath. Um, another problem with the with the verse is it's not clear what the, inter, the the antecedent is to it, as in it is a bad business that God gave to to man. Does he mean the investigation itself is a, a bad business? Does he mean that everything in the world that he saw is a bad business? I would like to propose a third thing. I think that the it here is the compulsion to understand everything, the compulsion to make sense out of everything is. Is absurd. That is, man is compelled to make sense of all the absurdities, but since it's impossible, that compulsion itself is absurd. If we could just be happy with our lot, everything would be fine. But a fundamental human absurdity is that we're not happy until we understand everything. Everything needs to be made sense. That pursuit is absurd because ultimately it's futile, as Kohelet himself points out, and therefore it's a bad business. And Kohelet seems to be saying that it's God's fault. That is, had God, God has given to humans the unfortunate compulsion to understand everything. So if we assume that, cynic, that Kohelet is cynical, which I do not, so maybe we should translate the word la'anot, as some do, to, to, to afflict. That is, man, God has afflicted man with this I- impossible pursuit of understanding. However, the, to mean afflict, the, the root ayin nun hey, which we have here, really has to be in the pl, and here we have it in the kal. The usual translation means to answer, but that doesn't really fit. So I think it's similar to the word inyan in the sentence as well. That is, God keeps us busy and preoccupied with the absurd, the terrible compulsion to understand everything, which is flat out impossible. Verse fourteen. I think we will see that the word. Ra'a, ra'iti, does not mean just to see, literally to see, but it means to draw conclusions and theses from observations and instigations. So I think the sense here is, based on my observations of everything done, or maybe everything made into the sun, meaning metaphorically everything under the sun means everything a man does in the space of a lifetime, and behold, it is all hevel, it is, it is hevel, and it is a pursuit, it leaves no impression, it is a pursuit of the wind. This is very difficult because all, not all the words are clear, and it's not clear, what, again, what he's referring to. So some say the word ra'ud comes from the word ra'a, and he's referring to all of the things that are done in the world by man. Um, that is, all the things that are done causes the spirit to be broken. 
But I think that it's a continuation of this idea of not the things that are done are Hevel, but the pursuit of understanding what happens in the world, of everything that is created, everything that happens in the world is is Hevel. And, and I think the word comes from the Aramaic Ra'ah, with the switch of the Ayin and the Tzadi, meaning pursue or want. Or maybe you could go from the word shepherd, Ro'eh. Um, and, and what this means is that to try to understand everything in the world is like the futile desire to try to capture and understand the wind. And this understanding of the verse fits perfectly into the next the next verse. That which is crooked cannot be fixed, and you can't count what's not there. Of course, in modern math, zero and negative numbers are countable, but you get the idea of what he's trying to say. Now, again, on one hand, you could say that physically what man does in this world cannot fix that which is broken, and that man can create something out of something that doesn't exist. Uh, and it's talking about the futility of man's actions. But Again, I think that, that, that what it's really trying to, uh, what he's really trying to say is that the investigation of what happens in this world, what God does, what man does, and the interaction of the both, that philosophizing cannot always make sense. Lo yuchalitkon, that which is muvat, things which simply are absurd, cannot be turned into non-absurdities. Sometimes there are no answers. Sometimes you cannot count things which are not there, like taking pieces of, of, of a puzzle out of a box. If there are pieces missing, then guess what? You, you simply cannot put the puzzle back together in its totality. And unfortunately, you keep looking for puzzle pieces which don't exist, or at least are outside the scope of human reason. Dibarti ani im libi lemor ani hinei higdalti vehosafti chokma al kol asher ayalafanai al yushalayim vilibi raa harbei chokma vadat. I said in my heart, which means I made an internal assessment. Behold, I have increased and added more to chokma, to wisdom and to knowledge than any other person who preceded me over in Jerusalem. I don't think that just means I became smarter, but I added to the uh, uh, like an epistemology. I, I added knowledge of what can be thought of and what. What can be known? And my mind has comprehended a lot of wisdom and knowledge. Um, this, of course, this verse, of course, also adds to um, the idea that that we're talking only about Solomon here, because how could he say that he added chokmah to everybody that was before him in Jerusalem when only David was before him in Jerusalem? But as I said, the rabbis of the Talmud attribute this to King Hezekiah, Chizkiah, and later. And we're getting back to the next verse. But then I set my mind to know chokmah and to know foolish and inanities. And then I discovered that this also was as good as pursuing the wind. Now, note that this supports the idea that the previous pursuit of the wind was not that man's actions are like a, a pursuit of the wind or, or a bad wind, but that the attempt to understand them is, is, is useless and is like chasing the wind. So Kohelet will later describe why he decided to not only pursue just knowledge, wisdom, chokmah, to create an epistemology of which he can understand the world, but he decided to pursue foolishness. He'll explain to us what the foolish and inane things are and, and why he pursued them. But here he's simply telling us that he, it wasn't enough for him to understand purely intellectual and philosophical ideas, but he needed to understand everything in the world, no matter how foolish. And now he tells us why he had to add 
to just a knowledge, uh, uh, ju- to just adding on knowledge. He had to add to what he refers to as foolishness and inanities. Since with the increase of chokhmah, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, there is an increase of kas. Now kas here doesn't mean anger. You don't get angry when you increase knowledge, but you increase frustration, agitation, despair. And this is the way it's used sometimes. And Tanakh kind of fits the rest of the verse. One who adds understanding, adds to his pain. Not a physical pain, of course, but the frustration of one's intellect not being able to work things out, which is everyone knows who's trying to you know, figure something out and they just can't do it. It's a, it's a, it manifests itself in physical frustration as well. Kohelet will continue in this vein in chapter 2, but let me conclude this chapter by re- re- reiterating my read of the text. I don't think Kohelet is telling us about his despair of the things that he sees done in this world. He'll get to that later. He'll focus on, on, on God's actions and man's actions and, and talk about them. This is about his despair that he is driven intellectually and driven philosophically, and driven theologically, that these are compulsions. He would love to turn off his mind and tune out the world because it's absurd to try to resolve everything when it can't be done. Unfortunately, he just can't. God has given him and us the need to know, and that need to know is absurd. And uh, even though we know it's absurd, we continue pursuing things that we ultimately know that we can't know. This is, of course, not the only way to understand this opening chapter, and you should definitely read Rashi and explore other avenues. It's a mysterious book, and as I quoted Rav Yol before, we're not always sure what, what uh, Kohelet wants from us. But that's my uh, that's my theory for chapter one, and I'll do my best with the rest of the book as well.